Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring holism and unity as an imperative for survival. My guest is Peter Todd, who is with me from Sydney, Australia, where he is a psychotherapist with a Jungian orientation. Peter is the author of The Individuation of God, Integrating Science and Religion. Welcome, Peter. Uh, very glad to be with you, Jeffrey, and exploring such significant themes for the future of our planet and humanity. Indeed, our topic uh, has to do with the survival of, of humanity, and we are currently, as we speak, in the middle of, of one of the great extinctions on this planet, and an extinction caused by human activity. We're suffering from all sorts of environmental problems, and you, there in Australia, uh, are right in, in the midst of a great conflagration uh, right now. Now, perhaps uh, we could begin by just having you describe what is happening right there where, where you are in Sydney, Australia. It's uh, 42 degrees, but for some time it's a bit, it has been a little bit like being in one of the layers of Dante's Inferno. So uh, it's an indication of an anthrop anthropogenic contribution to climate change, which is responsible for all of these disasters, as well as the anthrop more anthropogenic uh, misuse of uh, scientific expertise to develop thermonuclear weapons, which represent another major threat to our survival. I understand, as, as we discussed earlier, that half a billion Animals, 500 million animals have been destroyed by these fires. And uh, I gather that the uh, pollution from the fires, the smoke, uh, is engulfing the city of Sydney, where you are right now. I live about two miles out of the city, and we can't even see the skyscrapers with the uh, smoke haze. Where you are in Sydney, Australia, is the epicenter of, of a very serious problem right now. So it, it's appropriate that we're talking about what, what can we do to address these kinds of problems, which to a large degree are, are created by our own species. Absolutely. They are anthrop anthropogenic in nature, both climate change and all the disasters that are currently befalling the earth, including this country. And again, I mentioned the imminent danger of thermonuclear war and the destruction of the entire planet, which I personally find very worrying. However, I think we're also here to discuss some possible ways of transforming consciousness individually and collectively so as to mitigate the possible impact of an Armageddon in the near future. You know that I, uh, putting out three videos every week, uh, ultimately the intention here is, is to help raise consciousness uh, for the viewers. We're now up to over 70,000. I'd love to see it grow. But uh, it strikes me that uh, if we're depending on a, a shift in consciousness, uh, 
we're in trouble because that shift uh, seems to be reaching millions of people, but percentage-wise, it's still a very small percentage. Though it may raise consciousness individually and collectively of the need for unanimization, as they are put it, or for a holistic uh, consciousness embracing the earth that is non-local and also involving a re-spiritualization of a very desacralized planet, that we might find ourselves in the position, as the famous physicist Niels Bohr once put it, of needing to become real actors in the cosmic drama rather than mere spectators feeling passive and helpless and depressed at beholding it all. So I think the challenge is for us to, to move beyond the very necessary transformation and re-spiritualization of the world into ways of actually acting in acting so as to avert these disasters and perhaps uh, the end of the world, as Teilhard put it. Teilhard talked about uh, the Omega Point. We're going to be doing another inter interview about that. Uh, some people would say that, you know, the human race is doomed because sooner or later the stars will burn out and, and the whole universe will collapse uh, on itself. But we're dealing now with much more immediate issues and, um, I guess if, if we were to consider holism as something of uh, an antidote to the problems we're facing, it would be useful to um, begin by defining just what you, you mean by holism. Well, I derived that concept from a number of sources, but more specifically from reading the work not only of Tayar, but of Jung and Powell and David Bohm and his colleagues with Wholeness and the Implicit Order and the Undivided Universe, and both having their roots in a largely unconscious movement towards not only survival but individuation of the species in connection with a numinous god archetypal self or unconscious god image, as Jung would put it. I think that's very much lacking, and a restoration of wholeness would involve among other things, I think, a re-spiritualization of the world and constellating that archetype of the transcendent God archetype that Jung and people like Roderick Main more recently have written about. When you talk about re-spiritualization, uh, it suggests that at one time the world was different uh, than it is now. I suspect that until the schism between science and religion which occurred with the Enlightenment, there was probably a more holistic view of the world, and then, then at that time, however, there were no threats from other theology or science to the future of the planet. However, that situation has been reversed, and Wolfgang Powell, who was one of those, who wrote a great deal in his collaboration with Carl Jung about the desperate need to restore psyche to science and also uh, to work towards achieving wholeness in the world, a re if you like, a holism at a collective and human conscious level, not just down at the quantum level, where there's a kind of entanglement between the collective unconscious, which is non-local, and uh, quantum non-locality. I derive my notions of holism from reading those sources, and particularly the collaboration of Jung and Pauli and then David Bohm and his colleagues, and also wanting to really clearly distinguish between a kind of... Uh, expanded consciousness, but one which is in danger of neglecting the sheer power of the collective unconscious with its archetypes, which are 
with the collective unconscious, of course, as Jung put it, is coextensive with the cosmos itself, as indeed he believed the divine was coextensive with the cosmos itself, and that God, if you want to use that word, is co-evolving with us and indeed entangled with us. Well, it sounds to me as if you're describing a world in which we acknowledge at a global level our interconnectedness uh, with each other and with nature and even uh, with the cosmos as a whole and and that we understand it to be not just some sort of material connection but a sacred connection uh, based on uh, respect for all life forms respect for all life forms and for the interconnectedness and sacredness of all people and the ecosystems that support them and as I've suggested probably in some of our earlier interviews, one of the greatest threats to that has been the prevailing and dominant paradigm of materialism in the West, which has allowed people without conscience to feel quite entitled to consume the resources of the earth or to attack other people in the name of various ideologies, whether the collective dialectical materialism of Marx or sometimes some forms of capitalism very dangerous materialism because it despiritualizes the world and ourselves, desouls the world, as Jung would put it. How do you imagine that we can arrive at, at such an understanding at a global level? Uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, you don't think it can be enforced in a top-down manner. It, it has to sort of emerge naturally, wouldn't you say? I absolutely agree. And if we look at the response of say, the people of this country, to the current bushfire emergency, it seems that there is a glowing unity of awareness of the sheer urgency of, if you like, the summons presented to humanity of these disasters which are occurring even now. So as more and more people grasp the reality of the summons and see that they don't have to be mere spectators but possibly actors in responding to the summons, there may be some hope in collectively as well as individually acting in such a way as to reduce these threats to our survival. After all, if climate change is anthropogenic, human beings potentially can act in such a way as to either reverse or halt that, slow it down, and the same applies to thermonuclear war waged in the name of various quasi-religious and materialist ideologies. I'm under the impression, Peter, that there is an increase in, in people having spontaneous religious experiences, visitations of uh, the Virgin Mary, visitations even of uh, extraterrestrial beings or alien seeming non-human life forms, uh, experiences of uh, other dimensions, uh, near-death experiences, that all of this seems to be bubbling up in the culture uh, because we're facing uh, a potential uh, mass extermination. Well, I would suspect, Jeff, that that's a reaction back from the unconscious to what is happening at a more conscious level. And that would be, could be expressed in activism, or being actors and not spectators, as Niels Bohr put it. And there is some evidence in the world already of uh, global movements, including protests about climate change across the world, to uh, try and act upon uh, the emergency rather than just to let it happen and destroy us. However, I think for that to happen, enough people have to regain a sacramental or spiritual attitude of the world as absolutely sacred 
and inviolable, almost as a kind of global cathedral, rather than just treating it as something to be consumed to exhaustion and uh, not worrying about future generations, a remarkably egoistic and egocentric inflated attitude. I won't name personalities, but you and I can probably think of some world leaders who embody that uh, egotism in a very dangerous way. Malignant narcissism is a term that comes to my mind there. It's a paradoxical situation because people who uh, strive for power are often uh, motivated by wh what you might think of in uh, yoga terms as the lower chakras. They, they desire power. They desire control. They're, they want to dominate. And, and such people often are, assume the leadership of corporations and governments. Uh, and we see that ha seems to be on the increase worldwide. Absolutely, and I think we had evidence for it uh, with the rise of Hitler as a negative messiah figure in Nazi Germany, with uh, Joseph Stalin, who murdered about the same number of people as happened under the Third Reich, including the extermination of the poor Jewish people. Chairman Mao, with 40 million people exterminated for dissident thought, and that still continues today. People are murdered as dissidents and their organs ripped out whilst they're not anaesthetized and sold on the black market. I mean, how hideous and how sacrilegious an attack upon the human body and the sacredness of who we are. Yeah, many years ago, when I was a young man, I had a, a conversation with Idris Shah, who was a, a writer of Sufi stories, very well known for his tales of Mullah Nasruddin. And uh, we discussed this very point, and I, and I expressed to him how urg urgent I felt the situation was. And this, this was nearly uh, 50 years ago, actually. And uh, he said, yes, he agreed the situation was urgent, even then. But, but he said, the fact that it's urgent is not the right way to motivate people to achieve a, a holistic spiritual attitude. It, uh, it has to come from an open heart, not from a, a sense of uh, dire urgency. Uh, from an open heart, and a heart that is open to spiritual awakening or connection with uh, some sort of numinous reality or, as I've spoken about in previous interviews, the dimension of uh, numinous becoming in both cosmology and evolution itself. My worry is that we have to really ditch our addiction to materialism and consumerism for this transformation to occur, however. It's now not just a matter of urgency, but we have people parading in the streets protesting against climate change, for example. Uh, so there is movement afoot but much more undoubtedly would be required. And then there's the threat which we can come to, uh, if you wish, of thermonuclear war. And generally we have, in, like with Hitler and Mao and Joseph Stalin, power-hungry megalomaniacs who want to control everyone and everything, no matter at what cost to human life. We can now no longer afford to have those people in positions of power. They're extremely dangerous, particularly when they have access to nuclear codes. Well, I, I can't disagree with you in, in terms of the politics. Uh, 
however, I'm not sure that political action is is very helpful. I I remember uh, in the start of the Gulf War, uh, there were huge public protests, uh, but the the forces pushing for war didn't seem to care. Uh, here in the United States, ninety percent of the public wants more regulation uh, on uh, firearms, uh, but the uh, lobbyists uh, and the money people seem to be pulling all the strings. Never happens. If you'd like, Jeffrey, I'd refer to them somewhat whimsically, perhaps as phallic narcissists, in terms of what these weapons symbolically represent to them. I, I think you're talking about phallic symbols. Yes, indeed. Some years ago, Peter, I also had the pleasure of interviewing a sociologist, Paul Ray, and he had uh, come up with a very interesting finding that the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population, and I think this is probably true globally, are people he called the cultural creatives. And uh, he said the cultural creatives are divided into two different wings. One is a wing of people who are open to spiritual growth and personal growth, and then there's a political wing. Uh, but they, they seem very separate. They, they didn't seem to be united, these two wings. Well, when one considers the underlying ideologies which inspire them, it's not difficult to see why there would be such a system and why that would continue to be perpetuated. Our problem is to move beyond such a system into a position where humanity collectively acts in such a way as to do something about our contribution to climate change and certainly about the megalomaniacs who might be tempted to use nuclear codes to destroy other countries. Well, you referred earlier to the uh, important work of Teilhard de Chardin, and um, as I think about it, Teilhard was a Christian, uh, a deeply devout Christian, and uh, he believed that the figure of Christ himself, itself, served as a kind of attractor drawing all of humanity into um, a state, I guess, that we could call it uh, something akin to Christ consciousness. Unanimization and Christ consciousness, and though we're going to talk about the Omega point later, I'll have a lot more to say about that, but that's, that's what he meant by the Omega point and the divine focus of mind to be achieved by humanity. And, and yes, the Omega point may be a long way away in the future, but it does seem to me that uh, e even in the near term, something like that uh, is happening, could be happening, uh, might be happening, and, and perhaps it's worth uh, endeavoring, as you say, taking action to see what you and I and other viewers of this discussion can do to help it along. Well, I think this is where your series is so priceless for humanity because at least it raises consciousness about the importance of these things and the issues and what, what might be some of the obstacles to uh, global unanimization and dealing with our, the threats to our survival, the sixth extinction, as you so eloquently put it. These people who have inspired you, the Jungians, the, some of the physicists such as David Bohm and Wolfgang Pauli, uh, did they offer any sort of um, immediate solutions in terms of social action in, in the world, things that uh, they thought uh, would be helpful in their lifetimes? 
Well, certainly, uh, both Jung and Pauli in their collaboration and David Berman, Basil Hiley and Phil Kanan in their publications have all, using slightly different language, said much the same thing, and that is the necessity is to restore first psyche or soul to the world from which it has been exorcised since the Enlightenment and then in restoring psyche or soul to move towards wholeness where there is an integration of the soul or divinity imminent within us with a transcendent God reality and also an acknowledgement that we are also uh, material, that there is a material world that we have to conserve and look after rather than pretending it's a mere thought or figment of solipsistic imagination. I know there's also a strong push from the materialistic side of things. It's not as if uh, those people are sitting on their hands. They, uh, there's an enormous literature now on what they call transhumanism, the idea that humans and machines are, are blending into one another. And uh, to my understanding, the, these people are hardcore materialists. They uh, are not at all interested in, in the kind of uh, research and, and theoretical work uh, that you and I have been discussing. Yes, well, uh, if we turn people into cogs in an icy, cold, mechanistic machine, we then destroy any possibility of recognising the sacredness of all human beings and of the imminent transcendence or numinous principle that we all carry, albeit unconsciously, a lot of the time. That development you've described there about involving mechanisation is, I think, particularly maybe covert, but very subtle and profoundly dangerous to our future because it actually means uh, even more dehumanisation and despiritualization of the world and of those who inhabit it. Let me ask you this question, Peter, since you're there in Australia where you have a large Aboriginal population, uh, do, you, do you find amongst the uh, indigenous people of Australia more uh, of a, an awareness of the sacredness of, of all life? I suspect that Australia's first people, much as they have been disenfranchised and disadvantaged and stripped of rights, have always held, as far back into their history as we know from their, what they've told us orally, a sense of almost an animistic experience of the sacredness of the earth and their, their responsibility for conserving and taking care of it. In fact, they call themselves custodians, meaning guardians of the land. So I think that contribution is important and their voices need to be heard. I am under the same impression with regard to the indigenous people of North and South America. Uh, at the same time, I'm also aware of research that suggests that many of, of the large mammals uh, 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 that once roamed throughout North America were uh, killed to extinction by prehistoric hunters. And those extinctions are still occurring uh, because of anthropogenic uh, for anthropogenic reasons. I mean, even, as you know, species like the elephant are nearing extinction because uh, certain nations want to plunder their uh, tusks for ivory. I mean, how's that for hideous consumerism and total desacralization of a whole species, let alone humanity? It's just greed. 
So, so even a, a, a culture which in a larger sense acknowledges the, the sacredness of life and is not necessarily going to reach every individual within that culture. There uh, issues of uh, greed and abuse uh, will probably always be with us. Well, I think they are basic human shadow qualities, as Carl Jung would put it, and we have to be... Uh, what is necessary is that people become conscious of these unconscious and rather destructive parts of the human psyche or soul, the shadow, the collective shadow and its destructive impact, which of course has been behind the emergence of frightening phenomena like Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Mao and uh, several contemporary world leaders as well. So in effect, what, what you're saying is that uh, it's not just enough to acknowledge the sacredness of all life, we have to, in effect, confront our own shadow. We have to look within ourselves. Uh, it's really a, a process, as Jung would put it, of individuation. Of individuation and taking back unconscious projections of our own shadow qualities and destructiveness onto the world and onto other people's. Because whilst those collective projections are in place, then it's very easy to rationalize uh, exploiting using and destroying people for our own purposes, dehumanised in, in essence to uh, make that rationalisation possible. Thank God for the, thank God for the global internet and for, for programs like yours because this is at least one means of raising awareness of the necessity of confronting our own human shadow qualities as, and collective shadow qualities for that matter. Well, well, the kind of, I'll call it, shadow work that uh, takes place in Jungian therapy and other forms of depth psychology and uh, I would venture to say humanistic psychology, existential uh, psychology, <clears throat> has, I would say, to this point in time, uh, these practices are half a century old or more, maybe a whole century. Uh, but they've affected really a tiny percentage of, of people who have the means to uh, participate in that form of therapy. What, what you're arguing for is something on a, a much larger scale, and even Internet programs uh, such as is this one, this conversation that we have, will uh, only reach a tiny fraction of, of the population. How will it be possible to, uh, to reach people on a larger scale, Peter? Two things are contingently necessary for that. One is a collective awakening or emergence from denial and projection of the actual realities that uh, are created by acting upon destructive shadow qualities and destroying the world instead of being creative and contributing to it. And the other is, again, though it may be limited in scope for the moment, potentially you have a whole, this program has a whole global population to uh, inseminate with this type of thinking. Let's hope that others take up the challenge. But I think first we have to raise consciousness. We are no longer living in anachronistic nation states. That, I think, became a relic in the 1950s. What we need, I think, is beginning to happen in some places, and that is a move towards seeing the world as a whole, holism in the sense that you referred to in the interview holism and moving towards unanimization or unity of the human species, not just of small groups or people with tribal identifications, but 
species identification and God identification, as Jung put it in one of his last essays, Answer to Job. Well, I know you indicated earlier uh, toward the beginning of this interview that it's important not to be discouraged, that uh, it might be easy to feel like the, the situation is hopeless and there's nothing that can be done. Uh, I am reminded of uh, a statement made by Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, who once said, uh, never think that a small group of people can't change the world uh, because it's never happened any other way. Well, I'd make two comments in response to that, David, apart from agreeing with Margaret Mead. Yes, history is replete of evidence of movements, whether religious or otherwise, which began with relatively small groups of people and yet became eventually uh, part of the consciousness of whole countries, like the conversion of Constantine led to the Christianization of Europe. And although we may have some reservations about that, that's an example of a movement that began with an enlightened being, which became part of the consciousness of uh, a whole empire. And there are many other examples in history. I want to refer back to something you mentioned about humanistic and transpersonal psychology. I'm aware that you've had a big hand in uh, promoting those ideas and received an award for your contributions. And I think back to Abraham Maslow's work on self-actualization. And he's so close in many ways to Jung, though he doesn't necessarily embrace a numinous dimension. I think he's probably a bit agnostic. But he's so close to Jung in talking about the hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, and peak identity experiences, meaning mystical experiences at the top. So I suspect that even though he may not have actually articulated this as a manifestation of some numinous reality, I think that's what he was getting at. I and mean, what are peak experiences of identity except mystical connection with a reality beyond one's own finite ego? But I admire Abraham Maslow's work very much. He was a big influence on me, and, and he made a point of saying that these peak experiences were virtually uh, indistinguishable from mystical experiences. Indeed. So I think the world needs much more, many more peak experiences and many more mystical experiences, and might I just add, whilst I think of it, as a person who's experienced an NDE and had a remarkable personal transformation as a result, uh, I have this enhanced sense of connection with humanity and with the world as a whole and a sense of urgency in using the rest of my life anyway, however limited it may be, to contribute to this type of movement towards uh, a more global type of mystical experience it may even become a more an example of what Roderick Main and others are referring to as a, a panentheistic, evolutionary panentheistic religion or spirituality. Well, uh, the fact that you've had such an experience means that you're not just speaking uh, from from the many books that you've obviously read. You're speaking because you've had a direct experience of. Uh, uh, the sacredness of life and, and the infinity of uh, consciousness itself. Yes, very much in line with uh, you know, the notion that the universe is infinite and that the human psyche, that this, our spirituality is coextensive with the cosmos itself. I think that's Carl Jung's phrasing, actually. 
But to see ourselves as part of something that's coextensive with the entire cosmos is rather a shift in awareness from our narrow preoccupations from the perspective of the ego. Well, Peter, Todd, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure talking to you again today. Uh, I know that we're going to uh, be having another conversation on uh, the Omega Point as described uh, not only in Christian theology, but also in the work of Teilhard de Chardin. So it, once again, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope I've uh, managed to heighten the awareness of a few people. Mm-hmm.